It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Something that often happens before I record with guests is a little get-to-know-you kind of conversation. (laughs) And Krista, my guest today, and I really started to get into some deep discussions that really felt rich and excited me. And I just feel lit up right now, Krista, to learn more about you and your perspective and your knowledge One thing that you mentioned that I felt like could be a good starting point is hidden or invisible identities. And this is something I've really only scratched the surface of mostly when it comes to being neurodivergent, which is I'm currently using to describe myself. Although even with that, sometimes I wonder like, well, if I haven't received a full evaluation can I call myself neurodivergent? A place that I'd like to start because neurodivergence tends to be invisible. There are some people that you might be able to identify certain qualities or traits of autism, for example, or ADHD. But there are also a lot of assumptions and misunderstandings that go into those neurodivergences. So I'm curious about your journey. And did you receive evaluation for them, diagnosis? When did that happen? What has led you to your current understanding of your brain? Thank you for this question. I love this because it's so relevant for me right now. And I think for so many of us, when we were talking earlier, we were talking about trans people, for example, and how there's so much more space for conversation around that right now, which is great. There's so much more space right now around neurodivergence as well. For me, what that has looked like is I didn't know that I was neurodivergent most of my life. I'm currently here in 2022, 47 years old, and did not know that I was neurodivergent. Um, I've always felt like I'm different, and I've known that the ways that I'm different, I've been very aware of that. And I really identified strongly with being an introvert, and that was one of the differences that I felt very, very cognizant of a lot of the time. And it's a big part of the reason why I started an introvert-focused women's community in Northern Colorado. And so I started this community focused on being introvert-friendly and just really taking into account introverted preferences because so much of the world is just designed thinking about what are extroverted preferences and what will make extroverts comfortable and happy in this space. To be an introvert, my experience and my awareness of myself was like, as an introvert, I have to really adapt and do extra work, extra efforting, as I like to call it, to just engage in a semi-normal way. I started this women's community almost five years ago that was introvert-focused and introvert-friendly. What's happened over the five years is I started to realize that we were also attracting a lot of neurodivergence in addition to introversion. And I think that there's definitely a higher rate of introversion among neurodivergence. (laughs) So that kind of makes sense. As we were attracting more people who identified as neurodivergent, I was like, this is really interesting. I'm curious about this. I just started to be curious about what that looks like and what that means. In my curiosity, I started doing some research and I found some articles that were talking about neurodivergent. The most commonly included diagnoses that I've seen is things like autism spectrum disorder, ADHD. I've seen some reference to it can also include PTSD or complex PTSD, which is a diagnosis that I have had since I was about eight years old. I'm like, I'm very aware, again, because of the complex PTSD that my brain does function differently than other people's because of that. More than that for me, as I've been on this journey and of self-discovery, because I saw this TEDx talk about sensory processing disorder. It was the director of this nonprofit, and she used three different case studies in her talk. And every single one of the case studies that she talked about, I felt like I could relate to. And I thought, 
how interesting is this? Because I actually relate to all three of these case studies. That led me to finding out more about sensory processing disorder, which led me to actually getting diagnosed with sensory processing disorder and recognizing this is another layer of how my brain processes sensory information differently. Right now, sensory processing disorder is not recognized in the DSM as its own diagnosis. It is believed to be under the umbrella of autism, autism spectrum disorder. My understanding of what I've been learning about this is that there's sort of a movement to say sensory processing disorder can be its own diagnosis separate from autism, but it has definitely opened the door for me to question, well, could I be on the spectrum as well, joining different communities and learning about this for myself? And there's so much I can relate to from what other people talk about autism outside of or beyond just the the sensory issues. I have not received an official evaluation for that yet. I'm in the process of trying to get that, but it's actually quite difficult. What I'm understanding from other individuals that I've interacted with is that the process of getting evaluated for autism spectrum disorder as a female and as an adult is really complex because it's just not often recognized. There aren't really good diagnostic tools to understand how it shows up in females as well as how it shows up in adults. It's really kind of a process to even consider, but I have been feeling pretty comfortable claiming the title of being neurodivergent between having my official diagnosis of complex PTSD plus the sensory processing disorder. Now it makes sense. Now I have some way to define and articulate some of those differences that I've always felt and that what's different about me and it's not really something that's, that other people can see, certainly not if they're looking at a picture of me. And even in interacting with me, I'm so good at masking that most people don't necessarily notice that I don't fit in if they've just met me. But my experience of meeting new people is like, I am so uncomfortable <laughs> in those moments. <laughs> you know, what's also interesting to me is that people wouldn't suspect it just meeting me. The more time people spend with me, I feel like there have been many experiences in my life where I have not belonged in certain groups or been ostracized from certain groups. There's a lot of reasons for that, but it's surprising to me how often, while I have invisible, marginalized identities, it's amazing to me how often people will pick up on, but you don't quite fit, even if they can't point their finger on what it is. And I have experienced that as someone who grew up in severe poverty, as well as someone who grew up and didn't even know I was neurodivergent, as well as some other things, too. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's really interesting for me personally, because there are a number of things you mentioned that I can relate to. One of the big things that you're touching upon is, is fitting in. And that speaks to so much, like when we're talking about marginalized communities, misunderstood people, intersectional identities, and privilege. This is something we were talking about before we started recording as well as like how much we're taught to try to fit into one particular way of being. And as I get older, the part of my journey was noticing how I didn't really feel like I fit in, mostly in the way that I think. I felt like I fit in, quote, from where I was living, as I mentioned with you, Krista, like where I grew up, there was mostly white people in my town. I'm white. Oh, I felt like I fit in. I am cisgender. I felt like I fit in. I am heterosexual. I felt like all of these things about me that, that quote, seemed normal, majority of people. I was like, okay, there was that. But then there was like under the surface, a lot of things in which I didn't feel like I fit in, which could be considered invisible. You can feel those things and hide them because if they can't be visually seen by the color of your skin or your appearance and how people associate that with gender and who you're attracted to, all these other factors that people think as being the huge part of who you are, but our brains are invisible, how we're thinking is invisible, like there can be so much going on there that we might not even notice. I think I noticed it in subtle ways, but I put it aside and maybe just wondered, I guess like this is normal. Maybe everybody has these thoughts. But then when you read some of this research or you watch these videos and suddenly you're going, wait a second, are you telling me that this stuff isn't normal? 
(laughs) But then even the word normal starts to feel interesting to me. As I've gone down the journey of neurodivergence, I see so many people talking about these things now that it started to feel normal. And then I wonder when it comes to evaluating and diagnosing someone, maybe that's part of what makes it complex because it is such a spectrum. Some people say, well, maybe we're all on the spectrum. That then starts to feel very confusing to me because if we're all on the spectrum, like how do you pinpoint what buckets do you put people in? Do they even need to go into buckets? Like all of this starts to your point, being evaluated becomes incredibly complex. And I start to wonder, do I want to be shoved into some sort of box? Is that helpful to me? Would a diagnosis or evaluation benefit me or would it feel like a hindrance? I'm curious for you going down this journey as well as an adult, Krista, I've felt simultaneous feelings of like, okay, let's say if I get some sort of evaluation or I can continue to self-diagnose myself as I have, sometimes I wonder, would that have been beneficial to do as a child and then go my most of my life knowing something about myself? Or is it actually a benefit to have not come to that realization until adulthood? How do you feel about that? I feel like for me personally, this journey that I've been on, there has been a lot of healing and a lot of grace, a lot of resourcing that has come from being evaluated for the sensory processing disorder and questioning, does autism spectrum disorder also apply to me? And self-diagnosing, I actually think it's opened up a lot of, of doors. I, For me, I think that I would have been better off having been diagnosed at a younger age. And so I want to speak for myself and not for everyone. But there's this feeling that I have that I grew up feeling wrong. I grew up feeling wrong, a lot of shame when I would be in situations where it was where how I was different really became apparent to a room full of people because I have been socially rejected for that in certain situations. And I've been rejected by teachers or mentors, you know, school officials, like other people. There felt there was a lot of shame that I felt about being what was different about me. And I agree with what you said about using the word normal. That's not really a word that I like to use, but I, I like to, to use the word typical. I think that has less negative connotations than normal because like you're either normal or you're not normal and not normal. I, that's not a good thing to be not normal, but to be atypical, maybe that's not, doesn't quite have the same negative associations. <laughs> I had this shame around being atypical, around not belonging, around feeling like there was something different about me. And when other people did catch a glimpse of what that looked like, I mean, I'm so amazing at masking, but when other people caught a glimpse of that, there was so much this experience from the other person. If I don't understand you, if I can't put you in a box, then I'm uncomfortable with you and I'm not really going to trust you because I don't trust how you think. I don't trust a lot of things about you. So to be able to have some kind of context for that, I think would have made certain things in my life easier. I wouldn't have worked so hard to appear typical because that working so hard to appear typical or what we call masking is incredibly exhausting and it can be damaging at times and it leads to burnout and and a whole host of other challenges. There's a lot of research that shows that people that are on the spectrum experience higher rates of anxiety and depression and similar struggles. And I think so much of that is because of the lack of awareness and the lack of acceptance. For me, I think, hey, if I had been able to be diagnosed earlier, I would have had this information. I would have understood a little bit better the ways in which I was atypical, what that looks like for me and how I can own that and claim it in an empowered way. And already I've started to give myself more permission to, for example, ask for accommodations. So I'm an entrepreneur. I work for myself. I don't have to ask like my boss for accommodations. But part of the reason I am an entrepreneur may be because (laughs) I'm neurodivergent in a traditional employment situation. Like I can be successful and have been successful, but it's a lot, a lot of hard work for me. And not knowing why or how that was hard for me, I decided to go into business for myself. But even as a business owner, there still are places that I have allowed myself to ask for accommodations or receive accommodations or just say, make a boundary with clients or potential clients and say, this is how I interact with people. And I do that all the time. Like in my work, I tell people, these are the best ways to communicate with me. 
If you communicate with me in these ways, I am unlikely to respond. I can set those boundaries for myself and make my own accommodations for myself and say, this is how you get the best of me. And when you get the best of me, you're going to be blown away. I'm going to work so hard for you and just get amazing results for you. If I'm trying to fit myself into functioning as if I'm typical, I can still do amazing work, but it's not going to have the same impact. I can create those boundaries for myself and feel really good about it and understand what that looks like. That is so well articulated. I really appreciate the way you've expressed that. Again, like relating so much. It feels relieving to hear someone like you share that. I wonder how many listeners have been waiting for someone to express it in that way. That's helpful for me too, because I I think about these experiences I had before I started working for myself. And actually just like the other day, pointed out how common it is for people who are neurodivergent to become entrepreneurs because of the need for specific accommodations, working styles. It makes absolute sense. I remember when I left my last full-time job, I continued to work part-time for a couple of years. But the first day that I left that full-time job, I felt a combination of relief and confusion because I had to then train myself for the first time to what life would be like working on my own terms. When you talk about masking, it's hard to take off the mask if you spent most of your life covering and up and hiding. And then it took 10 plus years for me to even stumble upon neurodivergence. I didn't even know what that term meant until actually an episode of this podcast with my former co-host. He brought up that term and had never heard it before. And I didn't even identify with it until I started to learn what it meant to be neurodivergence. This open dialogue of people now coming out and talking about it so openly is really helpful, but can also be confusing because it almost feels like it's becoming a bit trendy. I'm curious if you feel this way too. And that makes me nervous. I do happen, like as a personality trait, I suppose, I'm grateful for trends. Another example is when I stopped eating gluten, it was because people were starting to talk about gluten sensitivities and allergies. But then it became really trendy and I started to question, am I actually sensitive to gluten or is it just because it's trendy? And so I felt almost like I'm going through that now where I see so many people talking about ADHD and autism and then other forms of neurodivergence and other, quote, atypical ways of of operating or or the way that your brain works. Sometimes I wonder how much of that is a desire to be different. Even like the introversion thing is actually something I wanted to talk with you about, Krista. When I learned about introversion and there are all these personality tests you could take, that started to become very trendy. And now I wonder, am I actually introverted or Am I neurodivergent or is it both? Like is introversion, extroversion labels that became trendy and people wanted to put themselves in boxes to feel like they could better articulate who they are? Or are those boxes coming around to that question again? Are they limiting? With your focus on introversion and neurodivergence, how do you feel about personality tests and how do you feel about when things like that become trendy? I think it's one of those things where It really depends on the circles that we're in. And we talked a little bit about this in the beginning, how, you know, most of us tend to prefer, and there's lots of research around this, most of us tend to prefer and feel most comfortable with people who are like us. And the more like us they are, the more we're naturally comfortable with them. Our unconscious biases can come into play in so many situations. But as we're talking about, is neurodivergence trendy right now? My experience is, no, it's not trendy It may just be that once we become aware of our own neurodivergence, we seek out naturally and just are attracted to people who are neurodivergent because there's this familiarity and there's this comfort. And so all of a sudden we're really noticing those people around us because we're attracted to it. And we're just like, oh my gosh, these are the communities. These are my people. This is what I want to belong to. Like they get me and I don't feel weird and I don't have to mask. I think some of it is that on an individual level, becoming more aware of neurodivergence is we just start to seek out and consume more content that's neurodivergent or associate with people or like want to to spend time with people who are neurodivergent because all of a sudden we're like opening the doors to this whole new level of learning and self-understanding and self-acceptance and acceptance of others. 
I have to say as a community leader that speaks regularly about introversion and neurodivergence, I come across people that have no idea what neurodivergence is. My perspective is it's not trendy in the greater communities that I interact in, in my city, in my state, because I talk to so many people who say, oh, what is that? And then there's other spaces, particularly online spaces, TikTok and podcasts and stuff like that, where I think it's being discussed more. But I don't think it's being discussed more across the board. I think that there's just certain pockets where these topics are more relevant and where people are talking about them more and where more neurodivergent people are coming together and connecting in community. If you're connecting with people in those spaces, it seems like, oh, there's so many people like this. So is this just trendy? And it's like, I I don't necessarily think so. Some article that I read, and so I might not be repeating all of this accurately, but something along the lines of when being left-handed used to be seen as a negative thing, there weren't really that many people that it didn't seem like there were that many people that were left-handed because really it was just people who could not fake being right-handed, right? <laughs> if you could fake it at all, that you were right-handed, if you were at least a little bit ambidextrous to avoid being shunned or shamed, you just learned to write with your right hand, even if it was difficult for you. When that idea started to shift that being left-handed was somehow incorrect, the rate of people who were like actually left-handed <laughs> shot way up. So it's sort of like the the social acceptance of that when it became no longer a wrong or a bad thing, all of a sudden, all of these people are like, I'm actually left-handed. And I don't think it's because it was trendy. I think it's because the stigma was starting to be uncovered and saying, maybe we're lessening the stigma around this. Now it's okay to show up in this way. So then people who have been masking or pretending in whatever way, whether it's left-handed, right-handed, introvert, extrovert, neurodivergent, or neurotypical, I think that when we start to remove the stigma, you just really find not that it's trendy, but that there's all these people that are like, I can be me. I don't have to pretend anymore. I hope that you've noticed during this show how much there is to learn from other people. Really important conversations can happen on podcasts. And this is a great time for me to mention the show's sponsor, Zencaster, because they help me make all of this happen. They have created this platform that's all in one, allows me to record really high quality audio, record video up to 4K resolution. They now have all these neat new features that'll help podcasters like myself distribute through all the major players where you're listening to this, monetize like ads, like including this very one that I'm doing right now, even do some editing. It's been an absolutely amazing tool. So if you're interested in having these types of conversations on a show of your own, or if you have a show and you're looking to improve it, I cannot recommend Zencaster enough. And because they're sponsoring the show, they are offering a 30% off discount on your first three months of Zencaster Professional. All you have to do is use my code WELLEVATORZEN, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R-Z-E-N, at ZencasterPricing.com. Or- <laughs> Zencaster.com slash pricing. I will link to that so that you don't make the same mistakes as I do in the show notes, as well as in the description of this episode to make it really easy. Zencaster.com slash pricing. See, I could edit this out using their tool, but I'm not going to do that. I want to keep this authentic like my show. So thank you for listening. I want you to have the same pretty simple experiences that I have, aside from all the human error out there that can happen. Uh, And I don't have my editors do my uh, ads at all. But I hope that you get to have this wonderful experience with your podcasting and content needs so that you can tell your story as well as other people's stories that come on your show as guests. Now back to the episode. I'm so grateful for your insight because you're doing this work and you're so close to it. These topics are curiosities of mine. I'm I'm mostly a personal level, but not so much on a professional level. I'd really love to hear more about what you're learning about people through these communities that you join, that you've created, through the book that you've written. And where do you think we're headed as a society? It's kind of a big question. But it's something else that we touched upon before recording, which was the evolution of acceptance 
that you're just mentioning now, when you have that awareness, how much it opens up doors, you're able to learn more about yourself and others. That's a big passion of mine, that curiosity, not just about who I am, but who other people are. What's something that comes up for you when you're thinking about where we're headed as a society in terms of becoming more accepting of people who are atypical? I absolutely think that we're seeing a lot of social progress and more acceptance of all different kinds of diversity. When we think about the term diversity, most people, the first thing they're going to say is race. And it's going to be those obvious, those visual things, those things that you can tell. So it's going to be like race, gender. It's going to be something I can see by looking at you. But there's so many different levels of what diversity really is and what it can look like and how it can show up. I do think we're making progress in this area. And I think ultimately it's a really good thing. There's tons of studies and research that show, for example, like diverse organizations are actually more successful and stronger than really homogenous organizations. And I think we're going to see that as a human race. The more we embrace diversity, the more we celebrate it, I think we're going to see that we're a lot stronger as a society, as a people, in all of our different types of communities. And it makes sense to me that certain typical identities were favored in times when life was much harder, when there was less access to resources, when communities were farther away from each other, when life the lifespan was shorter. It makes sense for me from an evolutionary standpoint that like some of those hierarchies as harmful as they are to people, those social hierarchies and those privileged hierarchies, they are very harmful to people. But it makes sense that may have helped the human race continue. We're moving beyond that or we're starting to. I mean, we're definitely, we have a long way to go. I had a conversation with a friend around the work that I'm doing and the work that she's doing and the work that we do as people to try to change to pursue social justice, to pursue understand a better understanding of humanity, of ourselves and others and all of those things. And she said something that I thought was very wise. And she said that she learned from one of her mentors, there's a point of acceptance that needs to happen when you're working on these types of issues that we probably won't see resolution of these issues or even maybe significant progress in our lifetime. The progress that we're seeing now is not necessarily because of social justice work that was done in the last 10 years. It goes back much farther. Society takes all this time to catch up to that progress. The work that I try to do, we'll see some progress and some benefit from it in my lifetime. But realistically, I do this believing and trusting this might not break open in my lifetime. I mean, maybe it could, maybe I'll be surprised. (laughs) But it probably really will break open In future generations, I may not be around to see it, but just know that we're like, we're building the framework for more and more acceptance, for a better understanding of ourselves, for more embracing of diversity and how this can make us all stronger and all better as individuals, as well as communities, as a race of humans on this earth. And that's really what I hope for. And how I try to think of it, because it can be discouraging too. I think at times to be speaking up about things, even though it may seem like, oh, talking about neurodivergence is trendy. It may seem like that. There's still going to be a lot of resistance. There's still going to be a lot of people in a lot of corporations, in in a lot of organizations where it's going to take a long time for people's minds to really change about certain things. Even as the conversation is becoming more common, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are comfortable with the conversation or accepting of the conversation. That's so relevant. I did want to touch on something else because you did mention my book. And so I do have a book. It's called Beautiful Badass, How to Believe in Yourself Against the Odds. I didn't know I was neurodivergent when I wrote that book, but I did know I had other intersectional identities. I'm queer, for example, and that I grew up in pretty extreme poverty, that I grew up with mental illness someone who didn't really ever feel like I quite fit in in so many different rooms and so many different situations. My experience was often that people would give this advice of like, here's what you need to do to be successful in life, to have a fulfilling, happy, healthy life. You need to do these things. So much of the time that advice really fell short. And you and I talked about this a little bit before we started recording, that when I was growing up with a single parent who was often not home as a teenager taking care of my younger sibling 
alone by myself and dealing with all these challenges, living in poverty, all of these things. So much of the time, school officials or other individuals would say, well, here's all these resources available to you. But there was a lack of understanding or acknowledgement that it was difficult for me to even access those resources. I did not go to college for a variety of reasons, but one of those was that whole process of applying for college. It's like technically that was accessible to me, but I was also in a situation where, well, we got evicted when I was 16 and had to move and leave most of our things behind. My home was just so unstable. My mom was in and out of the psychiatric hospital. And so there would be periods of time that there was no adult at home and it was just me and my little sister. And if we needed groceries, I had to walk a mile to the grocery store to get groceries. I would first make sure my little sister was fed and that she got off to school. And then I would make sure that I was fed and that I got off to school and then try to do my homework. It was just like getting through day to day at times were very, very challenging this whole process of like filling out applications, financial aid applications, college applications, like doing all this research that wasn't really accessible to me. Like in theory it was, but in practice, some days I was doing great just to get my own homework done on top of all the other things that I had to take care of having no responsible adult at home. And even when my mom was not in the psychiatric hospital, even when she was home, she wasn't always totally present because of her disability and her mental illness as well. It's one of those things I think we often overlook when we think about what does it take to be happy, healthy, successful, well in life. I was inspired to write the book that I wrote, Beautiful Badass, because I really wanted to acknowledge that gap that exists. And I wanted to acknowledge that for anyone who is different for any reason, there are situational barriers. Mindset work and hard work, those things matter. But if we're not acknowledging hardship, if we're not acknowledging situational barriers, if we're not acknowledging what might be difficult for us, what where are we lacking access, where are we lacking resourcing, then we're not really helping people get access to healthy, happy, fulfilled, successful lives. I wanted to write about that experience. I wanted to write about, listen, if some of these things are hard for you, it's not because you're a bad person or a wrong person. It's not be necessarily because you're not trying hard enough or because you just need to have a better attitude. No, sometimes the reason it's harder for you is because it's literally harder for you. And you may not be able to do the same things that other people can do because you have different resourcing. Don't make yourself wrong for it, but find what you can do and find the resourcing that you do need and ask for support where you need it. And so I just wanted to really acknowledge that gap because I feel like that's so important. Before I started writing Beautiful Badass, I had read a study on motivation that was done with these inner city kids. And what they found in the study was they really surprised them. They thought that if they gave the students all these motivational messages, like you can do anything you set your mind to, you just have to work hard and want it enough that that would improve these students' performances across the board. But what they found actually is that when they went through this whole motivational program, and that was the message that these students heard, the students with less privilege started all of a sudden doing worse in school, started engaging in risky behavior, started missing classes. And so when they followed up on the study to, to find out more about that, what they found was that those less privileged students had a much harder time achieving the things that their more privileged peers were able to achieve. But they didn't recognize the reason this is harder for me is because I have less privilege, they internalized their inability and started to believe there was something wrong with them. If this is all it takes, if it just takes hard work, if it just takes a good attitude and hard work and I'm struggling to do this, then I must be broken. There is something wrong with me. I am not good enough. I am not capable. And that's fucking bullshit. We are all capable. We are all good enough. We all deserve good things. And if we're struggling to achieve something that seems easy for someone else, or even if we know that the other person has worked hard for it, we work hard for it and we can't achieve that same thing. It is not because you are not capable. It is not because you are broken or you are wrong or you are bad. A lot of the time, I believe it is because we all have different abilities and we all have different resourcing available to us. And if you are neurodivergent, if you're introverted, if you are LGBTQ+, if you are not white, if you were, lived, grew up in poverty, 
So many different factors can come into play if you're disabled in any way. All of these different factors can come into play that it's like, it's just going to be your path is going to look different. You might not be able to achieve the exact same things as someone else, but you can still do something amazing. But you may need support and help around it. You may need additional resourcing or you may need to adjust expectations and say, cool, like that path is just not accessible to me. But what path is? Where's the road that I can take that is accessible to me? But like, let's stop shaming and blaming ourselves and each other and acknowledge that sometimes there are very real barriers to success in life and work. And it's not an individual failing that those barriers exist. Wow, Krista, I have chills. I feel so moved by what you just said. It's really powerful and important. I'm feeling so grateful because these are the things that I think a lot about, but I struggle to express. And so I feel in awe of your ability to articulate it in the way that you just did. It's so interesting because I had to acknowledge my participation in that system especially interesting now that I see how much I was struggling and how much shame I was carrying around. And it's kind of ironic that I fell into that role of saying some of these things like, oh, if you work hard enough, you know, I was hearing that stuff. And it was almost as if I was trying to convince myself that that was true. But I have, quote, failed at things that seemed really easy for other people. I still don't fully understand why. But when I hear these things, I think, wow, I have a lot of privilege. Imagine somebody trying to do these things I'm trying to do and, and quote, failing at who doesn't have those privileges. What are they experiencing? That's what comes up so much in my head. For instance, in the field of content creation that I've been in for so long, which is now often called influencer marketing, there were just countless examples of people making so much money and getting big followings. And I would sit there and go, wow, like, I feel like I'm trying so hard. Why don't I have those levels of followers? Why am I not making the money that they're saying? Why don't I have the access to what those people have access to? I feel like I'm doing everything right. I'm following their advice. And those are the people that would typically say, just work hard. Just do things the way that I do. I would buy courses by these people, these entrepreneurs that they had the perfect formula and they would talk about how much money they were making and other elements of success were there. And I would try to follow their exact steps and still feel like I wasn't getting anywhere close. And that got me wondering, like, what is going on here? When you talk about these hierarchies, it's like this, our society encourages us to strive to be in that small percent of people, a lot of times we don't even recognize how big that gap is and how hard it is to cross the gap. But also all of the things that may be naturally, quote, working against you because you might not have the privileges that those people have, even if you identify as a privileged person. Again, privilege and just being a certain race If you don't fall into any marginalized category, you have some sort of privilege, but even those privileges might not be enough to cross that gap. That to me is its like a punch in the gut because why are the people that are on the other side of the gap trying to make it seem so easy? Like the Kardashians, for example, Kim Kardashian's famous quote from earlier this year in 2022, when she said, you know, people don't want to work hard these days. The Kardashians are infamous for trying to make it seem so easy to look like them and to have their wealth. But when you really look at the amount of money and access that they have as a family, it is deeply offensive that they would say those things to other people who can't even come close to that type of access and privilege. I really relate to what you're saying, that feeling of like, I'm doing the work, I'm doing all these things, and why am I not succeeding at this thing? And it reminds me of when I was in high school, there was this story that became pretty well known about this girl who grew up in poverty, pretty extreme poverty, and ended up working really hard and getting a scholarship and going to Harvard. I think they might have even made like a TV movie about it or a Lifetime movie or something. I don't know. But I remember people using her story as an example to me and saying, look at what this girl did. She grew up in poverty, too, and she got this scholarship and she went to Harvard. You can do that. You are intelligent and you're articulate 
and all these things like you can do that. And on some level, deep down, I knew that wasn't really true for me. Again, you felt this internal shame and blame and all of these intense feelings because I couldn't put my finger on at the time, like why that wasn't true for me and how that wasn't true for me. And it's like, it's amazing that this girl did this. And you know what? I feel like I've done some pretty amazing things also, but it's looked different and it's been in a different way. And that's one of the ways where I feel like my own awareness of my neurodivergence and my own awareness of my queerness and my own awareness of, right, like the intersectional layers of marginalized identities where I'm like, I don't know the exact reason that I wasn't able to do what she did, but I can tell you that I suspect that my neurodivergence was part of that. And I suspect that the mental illness that I live with is part of that. And I suspect that, right, these sort of stacked challenges were part of the reason why it was just like, I can do incredible things, but I can't necessarily do what she did. I can't necessarily do that specific thing. I think about that story all the time and how people try to use that to motivate me. And it was like, oh, just do what she did. Like, here's an example. Like you brought up the Kardashians and you mentioned their wealth and the access to resources that they had. But this was a story of a girl who didn't have a lot of access to resources. She didn't have that, but she was able to do this amazing thing. And again, I think there comes a point where we have to stop comparing ourselves to other people's stories and other people's paths. People love to do something and say, if I did it, you can too. And you just have to do what I did. First of all, in general, I believe that's not necessarily true because it it fails to take into account all the different ways in which an individual might be resourced or skilled or talented even. Just because you were able to do it doesn't mean that anyone can do it that way or that it's the same path. Someone doesn't even have to necessarily be incredibly privileged to still like that, those, that comparing, that story comparing can be so damaging, just like the story of this girl who grew up in poverty that got a scholarship to go to Harvard. I just knew on some level, like, that's not accessible to me personally. I did end up getting into college, but they had misplaced my financial aid application and had already allocated all their financial aid for the year. And so they said, well, we we invite you to defer your enrollment for a year and then we'll reprocess your financial aid next year. And I ended up not deferring enrollment because first of all, it cost $100 and I didn't have $100 (laughs) to defer the enrollment. But also the school that I had gotten into was in California and I lived in Colorado. And I had this moment of awareness. I literally had no way to get from Colorado to California. I didn't know how to drive. I'd never at that time... I never had a responsible adult in the house who who taught me to drive. I bought myself, I, I got a Sears credit card when I was 19 and I bought driving lessons through Sears Driving School <laughs> with my Sears credit card. That was how I learned how to drive. But I didn't actually even have a car or access to a car until I was 25. You know, so it was like, how was I even going to get to California? And let's just say I could have found a way to get there. I would have had no way to get home. I would have had no resources to come back to Colorado. I tended to do very well academically through high school, I think I knew on some level that was really hard for me and maybe harder than it was for other people, that it took a real toll on me to try to participate in traditional schooling environments and to succeed in traditional schooling environments. That just, in on paper, going to college and getting a degree sounds like a good thing, probably wasn't the right path for me, the best way that I could take care of myself and secure my future success. All said and done, I'm pretty proud of the fact that I'm the only one of my siblings that even graduated high school. And to this day, my siblings are all adults. I'm the only one of my siblings that even has a driver's license. And I don't say that to compare myself to my siblings to say I'm better. I say that to acknowledge just how hard our situation was, just how many barriers there were in place that none of my siblings other than me were able to be successful at completing high school or even getting a driver's license or all these things. And not because they were lazy or stupid or lacked motivation or didn't want to work hard, but because that's how hard our situation was. Thank you for sharing that. Your story and your bravery, and it takes bravery to talk about hardship because that our society seems to impose so much shame and judgment and assumptions too. I mean, I don't know if we've addressed assumptions enough in this discussion, but something that came up also in our brief but rich conversation before we started recording and and just acknowledging 
this one size fits all approach that we tend to have. I think about that too of why is so much set up for some sort of median human being when there are so many people struggling and yet we've kind of been conditioned as a society to continuously apply the same rules and guidance to everybody. And it's hard to not only talk about what you're struggling with, but ask for the accommodations, as you mentioned, because sometimes you don't even know what you need. That's something I'm brand new to with my learning style. And I've gone most of my life really struggling to learn. And now I'm thinking, okay, like maybe the neurodivergence explains it, but I didn't even realize how much I was struggling to learn. But it comes up in these memories similar to what we've been discussing here, I would be given resources at school and I would see other people do completely different things with the resources. And then I would have teachers that would write in my school reports. I find this like back to when I was really little, like kindergarten, first grade, a lot of the reports would say, Whitney's not applying herself. And I would see that over and over again, taught over. And so the shame that I would feel, oh, well, I guess I'm not trying hard enough. And I would see the other students doing it and it seemed to be really easy for them. Something just wasn't working and carrying around all that shame and and then also burying it so much, I just forgot that that was even there. Had teachers and or my parents been more aware, like what accommodations could they have provided? And now as an adult thinking to myself, well, I can't change the past, but I, I can now currently identify what accommodations would help. And I actually had an experience of that today. I'm in a training program right now for well-being coaching. I had asked last week if they could provide a few things to me to help me learn better. And I went into our platform that we use to go through the training and they had provided it to me. I felt this level of relief. I didn't even know that I needed until I received it. And I felt acknowledged. I felt seen and heard. These people listen to me, whereas I've experienced a lot in my life where I would ask for accommodation or try to articulate it and people would just say, well, we can't do that. You know, that's too hard for us. We're not set up for that. We don't have the money to do stuff like that. And you would just constantly be disregarded. I'm curious if you've experienced this too, Krista, of like trying to ask for what you need, not really knowing how to ask for it, but just trying And somebody just saying, no, I'm sorry, like kind of the story that you're sharing about school. I mean, my heart just like feels sore hearing that story of not only did they ask you to defer, but then they wanted you to pay a hundred dollars. Like I feel angry. I'm like, why? What? In my head, I'm thinking, okay, what if you had asked if they could waive that a hundred dollar fee? A, we don't even know if they could have done that, but B, maybe it was really hard to ask for it. Maybe you don't even think to ask for it. That's part of this accessibility side of things too, is that some people don't even know they're struggling. Maybe they have a hint, but they don't know how to ask for things that they need. They're ashamed to ask for it. This is all so important, Chris. I'm so glad that you're discussing this because it it's lighting a fire under me, not just for myself, but wondering how much, how can I do things to help other, to give people more access? And I'm curious if that's part of your work. How do we ask for it, but also how do we offer it to others? Such a great topic. And I have experienced many times in my life asking for access and and not being given it and just really not having people understand why I needed it or what I was asking for. And not just from organizations or institutions, but also just from individuals. I clearly remember a time in high school, I was in choir and when we had performances that were in the evenings, I wasn't able to take the bus there because the the school bus didn't take you to things like that, to extracurricular activities. And my mom was not a reliable uh, mode of transportation. In fact, she refused to take us anywhere. I think when my sisters and I, I was like 14 or something, she was just like, take the city bus or the school bus or you're not going. There was no rides to friends' houses or concerts or anything. I really relied on rides from my friends to get to performances that we had in choir and things. I remember this one time that a a friend of mine who often gave me rides said, no, I can't give you a ride this time. 
my mom says that I need to say no sometimes and that you're taking advantage of the fact that I have a car. And I was just like, I literally have no other options for transportation. My parents didn't buy me a car and I don't have parents to drive me somewhere. I don't think she was being rude. I I think it was a lack of understanding that like, I'm not asking for rides from you because I'm trying to take advantage of you. It's because I literally don't have any other means of transportation for these after school activities. That was even on an individual level, not just on an organizational or like a school level or something like that, where I think there was just a lack of understanding of sometimes what it can mean to ask for accommodations. So I have had that experience in both arenas, both from individuals who maybe didn't really understand as well as from the school itself. Like, for example, I did meet all the requirements to graduate from high school on paper, but they would not give me my actual diploma because of some unpaid school fees. I think it was like less than $60 in unpaid school fees. And they had a policy at the school that if you have any unpaid fees, you won't receive your actual paper diploma. And it was an incentive to get people to pay all their fees before graduation. But in my family's case, there literally was no money to pay those fees. When I walked in my graduation ceremony for high school, I just received an empty envelope because they would not give me my diploma for that reason. I've experienced that as well. I do think it is hard to know sometimes what accommodations we need and to ask for them. And I feel very passionate about this work. And it's something that I really talk about a lot through my work with my introvert-friendly women's community. She goes high through the career coaching that I do and through all the public speaking that I do and in the writing that I do, inviting and encouraging people to be more self-aware of who am I? What do I need? How do I take up my space in the world in a bigger way that where I can just really show up as me? And feel comfortable showing up as me and asking for what I need in the world. And I don't think that it's easy, but I do think that it is important. And at the same time, I want to advocate for more diversity and I want to advocate for more options for accessibility. I also believe there is always going to be an element of self-responsibility that is important in this conversation. When I advocate for myself, when I can set boundaries, because we set boundaries Personally and professionally, I think a lot of the time when we talk about boundary setting, we think of personal relationships where we might set boundaries, but we have to be setting them professionally as well. We have to be showing up in the world in a way that we're saying, I value myself because the more that we show up valuing ourselves, the easier it is for other people to value us. That doesn't happen just automatically. People don't just value us just because we exist. I wish they did. And we actually talk about that at She Goes High often. And I start many meetings by saying, every person who showed up here today, you are inherently valuable. You are inherently worthy. And there is nothing that you need to do in the space of She Goes High to justify, explain, validate your worthiness. And also your worthiness is not directly tied to your work. You don't have to tell me how successful you are, how many followers you have, what your revenue is, what your job title is for me to know that you're valuable and that you're out there in the world doing amazing things, either on a large scale or a small scale. There's no need for you to explain that here. No need for you to feel like you have to tell people what that is. In this space, it is just known and accepted and celebrated. Like you are valuable and you are worthy because you exist as a human being. I feel like all these topics are so important to do. Being self-aware and advocating for ourselves in so many situations, we need to learn how to do that, not just at work and at school. We need to learn how to advocate for ourselves in medical situations, medical gaslighting. Like, I mean, this is like a whole nother podcast topic, but like, this is such a thing, but it all comes down to not just accessibility, but self-advocating, like being aware of ourselves, being aware of our needs and saying, this is what I need. And other people that we interact with, we can strive to be better at how we interact with each other. And I hope that we will all strive to be better at how we interact with each other. But we are also all human beings having a human experience, making mistakes. Even as someone who is a service provider myself, like as a career coach, when I'm working with clients, I strive to be supportive to my clients and present to my clients and all those things. But I also acknowledge and I tell my clients I hope that you will speak up if you feel like you're not being heard. I hope that you will tell me if something doesn't feel right because I can try my best and I'm also a human being who is going to get it wrong sometimes. It's like, it's a both and we need to advocate for ourselves more, speak up for ourselves more and 
we need to be open to listening and supporting people more in that. And I do want to offer something I've seen happen in practice that I thought worked really well is after the overturning of Roe versus Wade, I attended a women's healing circle with the BIPOC Alliance of Larimer County. And in that healing circle, a question was asked as we went around the room and introduced ourselves, and it was, what accommodations do you need in this space today? A brief pause to mention one of the show's sponsors, Athletic Greens, which I have become more and more impressed by over time. Obviously, I've tried their products. I really enjoy them. I've talked about them in a number of episodes because they've made it really easy to create an optimal nutritional routine. In fact, that's part of the whole founder story who it himself had tons of gut issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine that cost a ton of money. And that's part of the story of developing the AG1 powder that I really love. And I also love that when you go on their website, they've done a really nice job of outlining how they support sustainability. How do they give back to the community? They have an accessibility section on their website where they outline how their uh, web accessibility guidelines work in conformance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, I feel like they're checking off so many boxes and it's just been an absolute delight to work with them and to be part of their world for the last few months that they've been sponsoring this show. And because they're sponsoring the show, I also have the ability to offer you something, which is a free one-year supply of their immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash wellevator. That's athletic greens.com slash W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And there you can take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I've made it super easy. The link is in the description of this episode, as well as on the full show notes page so that you can check this out. Let me know if you enjoy it as much as I do. And be sure to check out the FAQ section on their website too to see all of the things that you can learn about them because their transparency has truly blown me away. Now back to the episode. And so I did want to offer that I think if we're looking for ways that we can be more accommodating of others, I think that's just a really simple and great question to ask in all kinds of relationships and all kinds of ways that we might interact with other people that we just say, what if any accommodations do you need in this space today? That question is powerful and so helpful for me, truly, because I wonder this a lot. I have a deep desire to support myself and others, and sometimes that can feel hard because clarity and comfort is often needed in those moments, and even it's the comfort of being uncomfortable, you know, like sitting through the discomfort takes a level of comfort with yourself, ironically. But a simple question like that is such a powerful tool because it's so open-ended. That in itself shows a level of compassion and interest. If somebody asked me that question, I would be so thrilled. But I will say, part of me also feels fearful over a question like that because I'm so used to not receiving accommodations or people thinking that my needs are too complex. Like that's part of how I felt different mentally. I'm used to people saying I'm too much or my ideas are too big. Like they want me to make things simpler. How can I simplify my thoughts because they feel so big and confusing to others? Perhaps as a way to start to wrap up this conversation, Krista, as much as I would love to just keep going with you, Maybe my final topic for us is like, and it's kind of two-sided. Maybe you don't need accommodations. And this is important to acknowledge. Like not everybody's going to feel that they need something. They might be asking somebody else. So this, the awareness of how somebody else might feel in the situation when they're asked about accommodations, that thing that comes up for me, I bet you is fairly common of like wanting to ask for something, but anticipating you won't be able to receive it. How do you manage something? Because I'm sure you've been through that too of, okay, somebody asked me, but there's that fear of being disappointed or that fear of the past repeating itself of 
wanting something or needing something, but not getting it even when you ask for it? How do you navigate that for yourself and for others? Question goes beyond accommodations and any kind of need that we have in relationship and any kind of boundary that we might set personal, professional relationship boundary to acknowledge that it is important for us to ask for what we need, even if it can't be met by that other person. Sometimes other people will be truly unable to meet our needs or meet our accommodations. And that's okay. But there is sometimes this fear around, well, what if they say no? And it's like, what if they do say no? I mean, I talk a lot when I speaking professionally in groups that I facilitate her in my, when she goes high, you know, I talk a lot about saying no in business situations. And I say, the more comfortable we get saying no to other people, the more comfortable we get hearing no as well, which is kind of like a nice gift that happens. When you start to say no more, you become more comfortable hearing no. I think it's okay sometimes for our needs not to be met by other people in every situation. There's no organization or no person who's going to be able to meet all of our needs all of the time exactly as we need them. Again, I think it becomes a both and question. It's important for us to advocate for ourselves and it's important for us to be self-sufficient enough to the best of our ability to know I'll be okay even if they say no. Maybe they can't do this, but maybe there's something else I can that they can do. Or maybe this is a need I can get met elsewhere. Or if a particular organization or community can't meet my need? Is there a different one that can? And as someone who the founder and leader of a women's community, I actually relate to both sides of this because sometimes people do ask for things within the context of She Goes High that we are not truly equipped to do, that we don't have the funding to do, things like that. And it's like, hey, I would love to be able to do all of these things that's not realistic and that's not sustainable. For in order for us to do the work that we're doing here in the world, we have to focus on what can we do well and how can we do that to the best of our ability. And sometimes that means disappointing people. And sometimes that means letting someone down and just trusting. I have to, as the leader of the community, I have to trust that I will do my best. And when I cannot meet someone's need, number one, they'll be okay. And number two, that maybe there's someplace else that they can go to have that need met. It doesn't have to be from me. That fear of being disappointed or disappointing others is is really, really huge. A quote from my book that I really love to repeat often as a reminder to myself as much as anything is, no matter what we do, we're going to disappoint someone. And I get to decide who that person is. Is it going to be me? Because most of the time, our fear of disappointing another person we so try so hard to avoid disappointing someone else that we're willing to disappoint ourselves over and over and over again. And sometimes we're so afraid of being disappointed that we're willing to even ask. There's power and empowerment and beauty and passion and all of this amazing like juiciness that comes from just having a desire, having a want, having a need, whether or not someone else can meet it, meet it for us. And just being able to be in the space of like, my whole experience as a human being is valid, even if someone else can't meet all of my needs. And I will actually be okay, even if all of my needs are not met all of the time. And I'm resilient and I can find ways around this and I can do what I can starting where I am and make the best of what I do have available to me. And I will be okay, even in that situation. Wow. I did not expect you to answer in that deep of a way. And I am so grateful I brought that up because it's very helpful for me on a personal level and on a broader scope of viewing the world because I have a fear of of disappointing others. And I think that ties into the rejection, which many of us have. I've had a recent guest point out that sometimes we're, we're so focused on our own survival, it's really hard to help anybody else. And that happens too. And so this is just a complex thing. And I think what you've really pointed out today is the complexity in this, but trying anyways, despite it being hard, knowing that you're going to make mistakes and it could be messy and complicated. And that's such an important thing to tackle because that one size fits all or this ideal state that we're often told through the media of like striving 
to get somewhere, striving to be something versus that self-awareness, self-acceptance, and then expanding that beyond ourselves to more acceptance for other people and curiosity about them and opening things up, even if we might not always have the perfect answer or result or solution or attachment to even getting something specific. But what if we can just embrace each other as human beings like you're doing in your community? I'm just so grateful to have had this discussion with you. It's been so rich and healing and lovely to be part of. And I hope the listener feels the same way. (laughs) And for the listener, there is a full transcript of this episode which more and more I'm looking for ways to make this podcast accessible. And the transcript is there for so many reasons. It's there for people who like to go back and reread things, to take notes, to find a quote, to maybe share something with somebody else. But it's also there for people that are hard of hearing or deaf and and just want to be able to take in the conversation. And so I'm working on more ways to make it accessible. That's the beginning will also be a video eventually on YouTube so you can witness this conversation through the visuals. There are links to all of Krista's work. So for those of you who want to read her wonderful book or join the community or work with her as a coach, that is all there at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There are also some links in the description right underneath your podcast player When you look at this episode, there's like a a read more that takes you to the rest of the show notes there to make it really easy for you to take some action right now. Krista, thank you so much for being here with me today. This has been absolutely wonderful. I want to say thank you for having me and thank you to all your listeners. Obvious that I'm very passionate about all the topics we've talked about today. I appreciate the opportunity to get to talk about them. They're meaningful to me personally. And I believe that having these conversations can improve other people's lives as well. I'm so grateful for individuals like yourself, Whitney, that have platforms where we can be spreading this knowledge and information and helping people accept themselves more and overcome shame and just start to be okay being who they are in the world and giving them the encouragement and the support to find their way through a world that is often very confusing, very complex, very troubled. I'm so thankful to be in a position to not only speak about these topics, but then to also have opportunities to be on podcasts like yours to talk about them. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.